and welcome to Health Virtually Uncensored with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series brought to you by the American Telemedicine Association, the only organization completely focused on advancing telehealth. Join Dr. Kavidar in candid conversations with leaders and innovators offering real-world perspectives and practical knowledge to impact change in our current healthcare environment. Today's guest is Lisa Sunin. CEO of Venture Valkyrie Consulting, an advisor to global companies and venture companies across the healthcare spectrum. This episode is made possible by the Ziegler Healthcare Investment Banking Team, focused on delivering best-in-class advisory and financing solutions for companies and organizations across the healthcare industry. Hello, I'm Joe Kavidar, host of the American Telemedicine Association podcast series, Health Virtually Uncensored. Every month, I welcome guests to talk about topics relating to telehealth and health innovation. And last month, I interviewed Atib Marotra, who's a professor at the Harvard Medical School in the Department of Public Policy. And he shared with me his honest, uncensored opinions about telehealth and what we still need to do to unrefutably state that telehealth is health. For example, he talks about the need for healthcare organizations and the technology solutions providers to push research forward to better understand how telehealth improves health and how it can change the cost value equation. If you haven't already, I recommend you listen to that episode as he offers up a number of great insights, as well as several counterpoints that we as telehealth enthusiasts don't always want to hear but need to address in order to build a system based on omni-channel care. So yes, if you uh, haven't listened to that one, go back and take a listen after you're done this, because today I have a a really good, uh, quite a treat for you in store uh, with my current guests. And lately I've been thinking about the other sort of side of this coin, which is the entrepreneurial or innovation side and how important that is to changing this vast iceberg, Titanic, whatever we want to call it, of healthcare as it sort of um, just doesn't change very fast. And I think innovation is one of the important ways to get that done, early stage companies, startups, uh, et cetera. And so one of the things I was thinking about in preparing for this is that for a while, it seems just a couple of years ago, uh, digital health companies couldn't be more popular. They had sky-high valuations. They were going public via these special SPAC companies and so forth. And I guess the landscape today looks a little different maybe than it did. And we're going to dig into that with my next and current guest here on the pod. So with with that intro, let me uh, introduce uh, my friend and colleague, Lisa Sunan. Lisa has spent over 35 years in healthcare and technology as an entrepreneur, operating executive, venture capitalist, and strategy consultant. She's currently the CEO of Venture Valkyrie Consulting, advising global companies and venture funds across the healthcare spectrum. Before that, she held executive roles at Canary Medical, Merit Behavioral Care, and Monat Ventures. She has been a general partner at several venture funds, including GE Ventures, where she led their healthcare investment venture fund portfolio. And if that wasn't enough, she co-founded an organization, which I'm quite fond of, called C-Sweetener, 
that focuses on matching mentors with rising healthcare leaders. I've had the privilege of mentoring a number of people over that platform, and I know I get a lot out of it. I, I hope the mentees do as well. It's a nonprofit, and um, again, with all the balls in the air, that that this was something that that Lisa had the vision to found is, I think, very impressive. So Lisa, thank you for joining me today and spending time with our listeners. Great to be here, Joe. I'm delighted to participate. Well, I'm going to dive right in because we have a lot to cover, and this is such a meaty, meaty topic. So as I alluded to in my intro, I think it's fair to say that the market environment looks quite a bit different than it did two years ago. Yep. Uh, the funding landscape was has retreated really after explosive growth in 2021. And that year there was $30 billion of, of uh, venture funding. It's dropped by half in 2022, just a little over 15 billion. And so as I alluded to when I was doing my intro, that, that worries me because I think these early stage companies are really the lifeblood of how we're gonna get ourselves out of this mess. So as an investor, why do you think that change has happened? And, and what are you looking for differently now than you were two years ago? Well, I have to say that digital health companies were absolutely the darling of investors two years ago, but I'm not sure they were the darling of the customers. <laughs> and I think that was a, a sorely overlooked fact. Had it not been for the pandemic, most of the companies that have been reasonably successful in digital health would still be desperately trying to find their first commercial customers. And, you know, I think what happened um, was that the enthusiasm, for the idea and the funding that followed it came ahead of the practical realities of, of what the market would require for the long term. Um, and so now we're having our reckoning, you know, with or without the rest of the economy collapsing around it didn't help. So, you know, for me as an investor, if I think about it from my investor hat, you know, I spent half my time there and half my time sort of in the, in the entrepreneurial world. Um, as an investor, I actually don't think I would be looking for something different because two years ago I stopped investing in these cat in this category because I was very <laughs> concerned about the the way that money and valuations were getting ahead of the business operations and business models and um, the the sort of you know ignoring of fundamentals of business and the hope being the strategy model that so many were employing. Where, you know, where in reality, the companies were still figuring out their worlds and the buyers were still figuring out how to integrate these products into the world. And they still are, by the way, in most cases. Um, but I think if you're somebody who got caught up in a lot of that stuff, um, what you should be looking for that you may have not looked for as much before is customer validation, you know, proof that these products and services make a material difference in their businesses, the customer's businesses, and proof that there's a return on investment in whatever form the customer cares about, whether it's cost or, or quality or access or whatever, or all of those things. And that just suggesting it should be so is not good enough, but demonstration of that is really essential. And I think the other thing that got kind of overlooked was the importance of qualified healthcare knowledgeable management. Um, there are a lot of companies that came online with people, you know, maybe a healthcare person, but lots of not healthcare people who thought they could revolutionize the industry and, you know, more power to them if they could, but mostly they can't because it's a very tough marketplace to change. So, you know, between having a, a really experienced, smart management team and my experience, I mean, people that really get healthcare and how things get paid for and what the incentives are. 
and, and a functional board of directors um, because the a lot of boards got really dysfunctional during this time and that problem remains to this day, particularly as some of these companies happen to deal with financing and down rounds. Hmm. Uh, those are things I'd be spending a lot of time on if I was an investor in these areas in this area right now. Yeah, that's really helpful to sort of put it put it in perspective. I, I want to pull on a, a couple of those threads, and I'm thinking back to my days when 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 we had the Center for Connected Health at yeah, yeah. Brigham. I would meet with companies, and I think this sort of mirrors something you said, which is it's a sort. Of, I think it's an engineering kind of way of thinking. If if we build it and it seems to work well, of course doctors and patients will use it. And that doesn't always seem to pan out. I've, I've realized <laughs> maybe maybe you should think a little harder about that one. The, yeah, the other, and again, you, you, that one you mean? <laughs> you, you mentioned this as well, but I, just to, just to sort of underscore, the uh, tech entrepreneur who did really well in tech, and then unfortunately had a brush with the healthcare system, either a family member or personally, and just learned just how awful. We, we treat them as customers and how complicated it is to get things done and decided that they're going to fix that. And yeah. without, as you say, without a lot of people surrounding him or her that that have the experience. Yeah. I know it's tricky. Any more thoughts on either, either one of those? Well, I think, um, no, not really deeply. I mean, I think, that, you know, if, if investors don't, well, they both need to be cautious about experience and take some chances, I think, both. Yes, that's you know, right. They sound like yeah. opposites in a way. But I think take some chances, meaning use people, you know, find people that have a lot of healthcare knowledge, but maybe don't come from a traditional, yeah. you know, CEO of a big company or participant in a big, big company roles that have different experiences and make sure you have multidisciplinary, you know, folks, not just tech people and you know, business people and salespeople really matter. Go-to-market knowledge and understanding really matters as much as it does getting the tech right. You know, Field of Dreams is a movie, not a strategy, as we just mentioned. So, so an- another one um, that again, these are all just for for listeners. These are, are are themes that have emerged, I think, in our collective experience over the years. Another one is the person who is incredibly enthusiastic, but you look at it and it's it's either a feature or a product, but not a company. Right. How, how do you manage that? How do you sort of help guide them to a better place? Yeah, that's a big problem. And I think that takes, again, a combination of knowledge and experience and also re, you know being, being real honest with yourself. Because one of the things that's really happened over the last five, six years in digital health, maybe 10 years, is a lot of things that were products got funded like they were companies. Yeah. And, you know, I just talked to a company yesterday that, showed me, you know, their typical five-year revenue projection that ended in, you know, $150 million in five years, starting with zero today and being 43 million next year. You know, it's like, come on, (laughs) you know, has anybody seen evidence of that ever in this field? And the answer is no. So I think if you, you have to be more savvy about what the returns profile for a venture investor needs to be. Not all businesses need to be venture-backed. Not all businesses need to be large businesses. They should be the size they're meant to be. Yeah. But if you take a product and to build a venture-backed company out of it, you're going to have to, you know, figure out how to get its value to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars before anybody's going to feel good about it. Yep. And yep. Uh, not everything has the capacity to do that. So I think that this really has to be a self-awareness exercise and spend time on the comparables, what's happened there, you know, in in their growth trajectories and the like. But it's tough because, you know, it's really hard to convince people who are on a mission um, to 
take a hard look at themselves sometimes. And you need a balance, like you said, of that enthusiasm and that, you know, passion and drive, but you also need a dose of reality. So you need, you know, both Pooh and Eeyore in the mix here. (laughs) um, You know, we're learning that lesson the hard way with a lot of companies that are now being forced to merge, you know, without real returns yet and on the hope that they fit in somebody else's overall company. Yeah. Yeah. It's occurred to me for some time now that the way venture funds are set up may may make it just harder in this space. What do I mean by that? Limited partners, of course, make a risky investment by investing in venture funds. And so they they want a, a good return and they want it at the end of their cycle, which is usually 10 years. So for the VCs to be raising their next fund, they usually have to show progress in five, I think. Uh, Again, you're more in this. You can correct me if I've got the numbers wrong. But in most of these healthcare companies, I think are really going to show value. It's it's a long haul patient investor that's required. Do you do you see ways to sort through that or or? How do you guide both the investment side and the entrepreneurial side around that dilemma? Or is it a dilemma? Maybe I maybe I don't see it the right way. Well, I think it is a dilemma. You know, if you get an, I mean, most healthcare companies re- take eight to 10 years on average. So average, yeah. meaning some yeah. are longer, right. to, to reach exit, you know, yeah. and a positive exit. I mean, they take a lot less to reach a negative exit. <laughs> and most venture funds, as you point out, are 10 to 12 years in life. It's 10 years by you know structure, but usually they have extensions on them. And so if you get an investment in the first year of a fund, that's great. You've got plenty of time. They're not in that big a rush comparatively. But you know, we've gotten into this cycle where venture, you know, sorry to you know, sorry to my venture friends to reveal the truth, but you don't really need to raise funds that often. The reason people want to raise funds fast is because their fees go away that pay them. And it's <laughs> getting as it always does during these cycles and the downside of the cycle, and this is my third one, it gets a lot harder to raise those funds if you've not got good returns. Right. The funds that are going to be um, judged based on the last three to four years investments are going to suffer. And so you often see funds go out of business in the down part of the cycle a few years after the, the, the crash hits because their companies are all dead, you know, <laughs> or they're repriced to where they can't really make good money. And there's always a washing out of funds. But I think the model for healthcare funds probably should be longer than for tech funds. The companies, the funds that have evergreen models where they don't need to keep raising or where they're you know, affiliated with corporations that don't have the same horizon or short horizon have some, you know, some appeal. And this really also speaks to the importance of choosing your investors wisely. You know, yes. I give a whole talk about how venture capital is like a marriage. And a lot of them end in divorce. You really got to know who you're marrying up to because the times will get tough. There is no great company that hasn't gone through real scary moments. And um, if you have people who are focused more on raising their next fund than they are on ensuring you create a great business with their support, you're you know going to wish you had something different. Yeah, yeah, that's well well stated. Uh, I want. To- turn and, and talk to you a little bit about clinical validation and, and research. Um, mm. I mentioned in my intro that Atim Marotra was was uh, my guest last month. Yeah. And he really spoke about the need for better data to understand where telehealth and digital health really help and at, at what cost. He made the point that 
Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to save money. That's that's really a, an unnecessarily tough metric. <laughs> uh, not, not many interventions have ever met that. Right. But, and and then use the example of pharmaceuticals, where you know people don't ask if it saves money. They ask, well, what's the outcome, and and is the money worth it? So you you kind of need to look at the whole value equation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that said. If people are going to do proper randomized controlled trials and they're expensive, they take a lot of time. Once again, we're getting back to our pressure to to show value quickly, and that's a little bit counter to that. Again, back to my days at, at, at the Senate, that was an enormous challenge that we faced with people that we we were trying to work with was getting them to understand how long it takes to to do a proper trial, mm-hmm. and then get getting the right amount of investment and, and the patient investors. You have any thoughts on that? Are we asking too much of these companies, those of us with our pointy academic heads? <laughs> well, I think it's, <laughs> I mean, there's clinical studies and then there's proof of concept studies and they're not always the same thing. I think if it's like, we're talking about obviously companies that have a clinical side to them. So they're delivering some clinical service or some data in the clinical realm that affects clinical service. The buyer's really the one who has to determine what the metric they care about is. Now, depending on who you're talking to and in what part of the health system, if that's the buyer, you know, they care, in my experience, more about revenue uh, creation than they do about most other things. Yes. And it's not that they don't care about clinical quality, but they care less about whether it's better than that it is at least the same and makes more money mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. And usually they don't care a lot about savings unless they're a very risk-oriented provider, you know, capitated-oriented provider. Now, you know, if you come at it from the payer side, they look at it very differently. They care a lot about savings and less about the revenue side and about you know some other factors that matter to them. And so I think the clinical trial, if it's a clinical product, needs to bear out for the FDA. But the clinical study or the marketing study that proves value needs to be defined by the customer base. Mm-hmm. And are we asking too much of these companies? Yeah, kind of. I mean, to your point, nobody's asking each individual doctor to do a clinical study of their own work to prove that they help patients get better. And in fact, the business model would suggest opposite in some respects. (laughs) Um, But in the end, it's going to be the buyer that decides whether they buy something because it's worth it to them from a return on investment standpoint. And I think the buyer may be asking too much, but it's what they're asking. So you got to provide it, you know, and um, without being able to provide it, they're not going to buy. It, I, I don't know, totally agree with the statement that nobody's looking at it from the drug side. I mean, I think there's lots of drugs that get like, significant economic scrutiny. They're not the ones that are the uh, sudden cures for cancer or hepatitis C or, you know, weight loss. Those are very expensive, but they're also, but they're also subject to a lot of scrutiny over time because they're they're not covered by the insurers because of their cost, or they're covered with great, you know, caution and great hassle. So everything is, I think, being subject to to the savings or cost parameter in some form or fashion, health economics. I mean, we're still seeing healthcare costs go up by, this year it was almost 20%. And, you know, people say, oh, that's not sustainable. But I think apparently it is. It's gone up like that every year since I've been in the business. So we've been saying that for a long time. Yeah, it's unsustainable. After a while, that word doesn't mean what you think it means, you know? So I don't know. I think you know you got to think about it broadly, not just from the academic perspective, but from the business perspective. Yeah, oh, well, that's great. Well, uh, 
I'm going to ask you about uh, a, what I consider an interesting topic, if not fun. When, when you recently had a mentioned in your blog that you don't like the term digital health, <laughs> and I was thinking back over the last. Um, I've been, it's officially 30 years I've been at it. This year is my 30th anniversary in this space. And there must have been at least 10 name changes during that time. Yeah. We coined a term in 2006, connected health, that stuck for a while. Yep. And, you know, ideally we wouldn't use any adjective as the the, the sort of analogy everyone uses that when you go to the, your your online bank or, right. or an ATM, you want to do telebanking or just, you're just banking. And and of course, at the ATA, the slogan is telehealth is health. So that's all just a lead up to say, what do you think we should do about names? And what's your thought about all that? Yeah, so it's a tough one because everybody wants something simple to refer to it as, including me, even though I hate the term, I use it all the time because I'm lazy and it's easy to say. But I think it's misleading. <laughs> I mean, I think we should just go back to, you know, we have healthcare services, pharma and med tech, you know, medical devices, and we have health tech for things that are not in the in the clinical or delivery realm, you know, back office stuff like you have in every industry. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe it's just called operations. But to me, the application of tech to healthcare is kind of a duh, um, just like we apply to every other industry, like you said, banking or manufacturing or whatever. I, I think tech enabled, blah, 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 is a good sort of proxy of a term, but it seems to me we should just stop saying it altogether and not repeat, come up with a new term. It feels like we should say, I'm doing services and here's the technology I use to make those efficient and better, or here's a medical device and here's how I'm using it to collect data and analyze that data to, to you know, improve patient outcome or to do remote care monitoring or whatever it may be. So I don't know. I, I don't, I, I wish we don't come up with a new term. I think it's more defined by the use case than it is by the, the tech. Well, it, it might be, we might have a shot at that. As you describe it, I, I, I thought for, for many years that we really couldn't do without a term like telehealth because so much of healthcare was just, I mean, it was 99.9% .9 was delivered in the office. So right. to get even people's attention, you had to have a different term. Nowadays, Everyone sort of knows that you have a second channel name. Maybe we should we should think about that. That's a aspirational, I, I guess. It's a, it's a good way for us to to wrap up. It's it's really been a pleasure. And as I expected, you dropped so much wisdom for our listeners. People are going to want to find you. What's the best way for them to find you online or on social media? What how would you like to be? Well, they can find me um, at my website venturevalkyrie.com. They can find me on LinkedIn at Lisa Sunan, or they can find me on well, maybe on Twitter at Venture Valkyrie. For a while. <laughs> Who the hell knows where that's going? Or at the cage match front row, you know, between uh, Zuckerberg and and yeah. Elon Musk. I uh, welcome outreach and I, you know, look forward to hearing from people and, and my email can be found on my website. So I'm just going to spell Valkyrie, V-A-L-K-Y-R-I-E, correct? Venture Valkyrie. Yep. And your last name, S-U-E-N-N-E-N. Uh, correct. Lisa Sunan. So again, thank you, Lisa, for being with us. This is every bit what I'd hoped and, and then some and appreciate your time. And I know our listeners do as well. Terrific. Well, thanks so much, Joe. It's great to talk to you and I look forward to doing so again. Yes, we'll have to do it again. So before I sign off, I want to share with all of our listeners that the ATA will be hosting the third annual Telehealth Awareness Week from September 17th through the 23rd. 
visit telehealth awareness, all one word, telehealthawareness.org to learn how you can join us in recognizing the role telehealth plays in care delivery and find out more information about the events, webinars, and resources available from our telehealth champions and partners, as well as sponsorship opportunities. That's telehealthawareness.org. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. Even if you didn't like it, we'd like to get your review and your feedback because we want to improve. But if you liked it especially, please rate and review. Subscribe. If you subscribe, you don't have to fish around and, and wait for it. It shows up in your inbox on whatever platform you use. You can search uh, any of those platforms by my last name, K-V-E-D-A-R, or Health Virtually Uncensored or American Telemedicine Association. All of those will get you to a place to subscribe. And thank you so much for listening, for giving us your time. We couldn't do this without you. And we'll talk to you again next month. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Health Virtually Uncensored with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series by the American Telemedicine Association. To engage with others and learn more about this topic, go to americantelemed.org. To learn more about Telehealth Awareness Week, go to telehealthawareness.org.